Do you really want to understand and connect with those around you? Maybe your team, your peers, your boss, regardless of age, regardless of culture, regardless of politics, or what about your own family, your partner, or your kids? In this episode, I brought on an expert in the one superpower that you have to have as a leader so you can truly understand and connect with those around you. And he has distilled it into five steps and that superpower is empathy. My name is Daryl Black and I take my 30 plus years in emergency management and crisis leadership and counting, responding to events like Hurricane Katrina and Canada's two largest disaster and hundreds of search and rescue missions. Also over a decade in corporate project management. Through this experience, I know what works and what doesn't. I know what it takes to move from well-intentioned leader where you're stressed out and frustrated and using trial and error to a leader that's deliberate and intentional and in alignment and calm and confident. I help leaders make a bigger impact, grow their influence and ultimately boost their income. I am legitimately excited to have this guest on this episode because as a lot of you who have followed my content for quite some time, you know that one of the cornerstones of leadership and connection and humanity for that matter is, is empathy. Empathy is truly a superpower. And I think it's something that, and we'll get into this with our guest, Rob, but it's something in my humble opinion, we're seriously lacking in this day and age. And, uh, and why are we lacking? There's multitude of reasons, but my guest and I, Rob, were just talking about this prior to is that it took us a long time to get here. So it's not something that was just overnight. And so it's an evolution, but the good news is that just like anything, we can turn the ship around and it's in conversations like we're about to have today with my guest, Rob, that we can start having those, those conversations and those quote unquote, difficult conversations. And so Rob, I'll turn it over to you. If you can just let the audience know kind of the Coles notes, Coles notes versions. Wow. That's, uh, that's aging myself there. <laughs> How about a summary of who you are and your company and uh, a little bit about the book you've got coming out, which of course we'll cover off in, in a little bit more detail later. Thank you, Daryl. It's great to be here. I've not heard Coles notes, but. That might be because I'm down in the U.S. where we would call it Eclipse Notes, I think, right. um, which I, I guess I can admit I did rely on a few times uh, here and there. It's cool. <laughs> so, awesome to be here. A little bit about me. I call myself an empathy activist. Empathy is my superpower, has been for a long time since I had that first spider bite in my youth, and it, it served me well, and I'm on a mission to help other people understand how to be empathetic in the moment and what empathy is all about. It's uh, it, it more and more commonly used a word, but also very misunderstood in terms of what it is. And that creates fear and, and people and some paralysis, I think. My alter ego, I guess you would say, is I'm the CEO of Ignite360, which is an insights and strategy firm. Uh, and as well as a training organization. So we help our clients understand and connect empathetically with their consumers or their customers or their clients and, and how they're thinking and feeling and how to make better products and services. Thanks, Rob. So Rob and I connected via Instagram and he talked about the empathy activist. And obviously, like we talked about, that's, that's a word that's near and dear to my heart. So Rob, Let's pick up with the word empathy and you talked about it 
just in your intro there. And I think that a lot of people maybe don't even truly understand and grasp what empathy is. So from your your perspective, what is empathy? And specifically, if you can get into the term that I read in your book, and I haven't read it before or heard the term before, cognitive empathy. So can you really get us started on this conversation around what is empathy in the first place? And what is this cognitive empathy? And also, if you could, the difference between empathy and sympathy, because I think a lot of times those get confused. Absolutely. So empathy Broadly, if you ask somebody, if I were to ask you, Daryl, like, how would you define empathy? What, what, what comes to mind for you? What's the first thing that you would say? It, it would be, honestly, I would have thought about it as sympathy, you know, having a, okay. a feeling of, uh, you know, along with somebody or, or something like that or, or for somebody. Um, and certainly it would be in my, uh, back in the day, it would be really thinking I agree or disagree with yeah. their perspective. And exactly. it wasn't just holding space, but it was about, do I have empathy? Do I agree with them or not? Really? That's, that's probably the most simple way I can put it. And, and thank you for letting me put you on the spot. So the way people often talk about empathy, when I am giving a, a presentation, a lecture or a workshop and talking about empathy, I always ask the audience, like, well, how would you define it? And I get back, oh, it's it's stepping into the shoes of somebody else, or it's feeling what the other person is feeling, or it's seeing the world from somebody else's point of view. And all of those are, are correct answers. But when you start to think about each one of those phrases, they're actually different things. One is very emotion-based, feeling what somebody else is, is feeling. The other is much more... Um, uh, sits a little bit more up in the, the mental functional space, which is around the perspective taking of somebody else seeing, thinking through rationally thinking about how is somebody else viewing the world. And so as I, I dove into this and, and there's a lot of research that's out there. So this isn't, you know, my own original coining a term, but what scientists have found is that there's two different distinct types of empathy. There's emotional empathy. That's the feeling that we have for other people, feeling the feeling of somebody else as if they are, are them. And then there's cognitive empathy and cognitive empathy is the perspective taking. And so that's stepping into somebody else's shoes. That's seeing the world the way that they're seeing it. And that's different. It has nothing to do with feeling necessarily. And as I've thought about it further and done some more study uh, and reflection, when you think about emotional empathy and, and Helen Reese, who's a neuroscientist out of Harvard, has found that we are all born with uh, the ability to be empathetic. And I think where that really is coming from is on the emotional empathy side, because if you go back to kind of prehistoric man, you know, you think about the the clan, the tribe, the organizing framework that was happening, you were feeling what the other people in your group are feeling. And that happens today. If you think about your close tribe, your family, it's much easier to connect with them um, and feel what they're feeling. Cognitive empathy comes into play when somebody from outside comes and approaches your cave or your dwelling or whatever, your, your, your group, and they're different from you. And you need to suddenly try to understand who they are, where they're coming from, what makes them tick, so that you can peacefully coexist with them. And maybe you can merge your organizations. Maybe you can collaborate and build something better, build a society. 
So there's emotional empathy and then there's also cognitive empathy. And cognitive empathy is the perspective taking where the emotional empathy is the feeling of what somebody else is feeling. You know, I really, really like that. And that actually speaks pretty strongly to the fact that empathy isn't something that uh, is necessarily easy to embrace, which is why I wanted to talk about it, because you are dealing with a couple of different concepts around the emotional side and, and the cognitive piece. And all of these traits ultimately are what drive our behavior. And, and I think part of the reason of, of this conversation around empathy and why it's so so important is because there is a difference between sympathy and empathy. And I'd like you to talk about that. And then I'd like you to lead into the, the conversation around an empathy crisis. If we're not demonstrating empathy, what is, what's the downside of that? I know from a leadership perspective, I have a strong opinion around that, but as the, the empathy guru and the activist, I'm curious, what is the difference between empathy and sympathy? And what if we're not demonstrating empathy and, and it reaches a crisis point as you deem in your book? The difference between empathy and sympathy, it's really the difference between a three-letter word and a four-letter word. Sympathy is about feeling for somebody. I'm sorry for your loss. I feel for you. Uh, empathy is about feeling with somebody. It's feeling the feelings um, as they're feeling it with them. It's on a, a level playing field. What sympathy does is it can create a power dynamic. Um, and it's sympathy... I hate saying that it creates a power dynamic and people to construe that as a negative thing necessarily. It can be. Um, sympathy plays an important role when you've, you know, experienced a loss uh, that, you know, it's one of the great things I think about social media is that people are able to rally around and kind of give a hug. Although I might argue that that sympathetic hug is also a little bit more empathetic. Um, but sympathy creates a power dynamic. It's a, a, I'm feeling for you. I'm looking down on you and your mishap, your, you know, misfortune. And I am feeling good that at least that didn't happen to me. Um, there's a really great animated video on YouTube about five minutes long that Brene Brown has done, um, or somebody had animated Brene Brown talking about it. And it's got a, a fox and a bear and, um, an elk, I think. And, um, uh, that explains really nicely the differences uh, in sympathy and that power dynamic that happens and where what we're looking for is empathy and having somebody feel what we're feeling. And it's it's interesting. Empathy is a pathway to many different things. It's the roundabout on the journey. So you, if you can come out of the, the dark forest and get to a place of empathy, all of a sudden you have all these different uh, avenues in front of you that you can choose from. One of which you could take uh, using empathy is to provide comfort and to comfort somebody else. But you have to have empathy with someone. And and uh, Jen Marr of Inspiring Comfort does some really great work. And as she talks about comfort, what people are looking for when they're needing to be comforted is that you empathetically are connecting with them. They're not looking for you to try to tell them, oh, hey, cheer up. It's going to be, you know, the sun's going to come out. It's, no, I, I need you to, to be there with me. And that's about having an empathetic reaction or response. Um, similarly, you know, in, in the workplace that plays out, people are looking to have empathy, understand what's going on with me, why I'm, you know, a parent suddenly working from home. I've got the kids running all over the place. My life is complete chaos. Hey, boss, whoever you are, and at whatever level in an organization, 
have some empathy with me. Understand what's going on in my life. It doesn't mean you have to agree with it necessarily, but understand where I'm coming from. And that might be why my performance might be different. I might need not be able to make every single meeting the way I used to, or maybe because I'm working too long, whatever the situation is. But it's about having empathy and making that connection. And so, if I can just jump in there, Rob. And so first of all, virtual mic drop, boiling down sympathy and empathy into just single words. Okay. So first of all, revolutionary. I have uh, way overcomplicated it both in my own mind and so on and so forth. So uh, kudos to you, Rob, virtual mic drop, and we can end there, but there's way more to talk about. And you, you talked about something uh, that that I wanted to to lean into a little bit. And that is the fact that I don't even have to agree with your perspective. And it's not about being right or wrong. We'll get into judgment here shortly. But I think a lot of times we we hear a situation or we hear circumstances or, or something and we immediately go into, well, I don't agree with that or I do agree or whatever. But what I'm hearing you say, and I, it, I want to be very crystal clear on this, empathy is not about agreeing or disagreeing. It's about holding space for that person, ensuring that they feel heard and that they matter and that they have a voice and all of those other things that I would submit to you that we're looking for, particularly in a virtual world, I think our, the need to have our voices heard and, and, and all of those things have really come to the forefront and empathy gives that space with whoever you're speaking to or interacting with. It's that open space that they can step into and they can be heard. So I just really want to hone in on that point because I think it's really, really important. Yeah. If you were going to boil empathy down to two really key words, um, that illuminate what empathy is. It's about understanding. And then the other word would be connection. Um, it's understanding where somebody else is coming from or understanding how they're feeling. And then, and just by doing that, you're connecting with them. Empathy, I'll also often uh, introduce empathy and, and talk about it. There's a great photo we use of some people in a movie theater. They're obviously watching a scary movie and they're all like, ah. Um, empathy is an E word. And that's how I, I talk about it. It's like emotion, a word that people are afraid of. Some people, not everyone, but a lot of people are afraid of emotion. They're afraid of empathy because they think it's all about the feelings. They feel that their fear is that they're going to have to give up their own belief system. How can I possibly have empathy with somebody that's on the, you know, don't just use politics because that's the easiest and, and the thing you see constantly. How could I possibly agree with somebody or see the point of view? Actually, it's not even agreeing. How can I see the point of view of somebody across the aisle? That would mean that I'm giving up my own beliefs. And that's actually not the case. You're doing that so that you can go, oh, okay, here's the gap that we have. And now I can start to work towards compromise and collaboration and, and get to a, a, a solution resolution together when I have empathy with somebody else. Sadly, though, there is a, you know, Barack Obama referred to it as an empathy deficit um, back in, I think, 2015. He might have said that. I think he was being very generous. Um, to me, it's a crisis. I remember in 2010, a study came out of the University of Michigan, and I was standing in the airport and saw it, you know, flash up on the news, and there's like the little ticker tape of it. And, and the study found, they did a meta-analysis of 
college life surveys from 1979 to 2009 from more than 70 universities. They found that in 2001, there was a 40% decline in the ability of their peers to see the point of view of somebody else. And that that number never, like it didn't pop back up because you might go, oh, well, that was 2000, 2001, that was 9-11. The world was blowing up. Yeah, of course, that's why that happened. Well, no, it didn't change. Um, the study authors refreshed the study, I think in 2016, maybe, and they know, I, I have not found the published results, but what I've heard through people that know the authors, like there was no noticeable difference and, and you see that playing out. So there I am standing in the airport going, oh my God, that's huge. Cause you know, even in 2010, I'm thinking somebody that's in college in 2001, like let's call them 20, 21, 22 years old, 10 years later, they're in their early thirties, their parents, they are in the workforce, working their way up into middle management. That's a problem. If we've got that much, uh, of an empathy deficit and lack of empathy showing up. And really, you know, in 2010, cell phones and social media were really just getting going. I mean, you you didn't have half of the platforms that we've got today. And so if anything, the crisis has just accelerated. In our own research that Ignite360 has done, we asked uh, back in March, we asked a, a question of, is it easy for you to see the point of view of other people? Nearly a third could not agree with that statement. Either we're like, I can't agree or disagree to disagree. And you're like, oh my God. <laughs> like, and it was, it's a, it's such a gimme question. It's like, I'm a little embarrassed as a researcher to be asking, like, of course the answer is yes, I can see that. But a third of people can't. Um, and it's, it's like, wow. Okay. Okay. There's, there's a, there is a problem. Just to jump into that too, from a research perspective. So a third said they couldn't. Another third said they could, but really they couldn't. You know what I mean? Like that's, yeah, that's probably, because I know that said they could probably st some of them still couldn't. Exactly. Oh, because yeah. I know, oh, I can tell what I'm supposed to say is yes, it would be socially bad for me to say something else. So I, th I thank the third that were honest um, and, and had some self-awareness to say that they couldn't um, or just couldn't even agree with it. That's, that's a problem. That's a problem. And you see what's going on, um, in society and it's not just in the United States. It, it, it's probably amplified here, but it plays out everywhere with the, the division that we have and this inability to connect and collaborate and, and kind of exist somewhat peacefully with each other and, and. All of that is due to a lack of empathy. If you boil it down, take out the political this or that, take out the whatever, it, a lot of it boils down to a, a diminished empathy skill. So after that moment in that airport, I was like, okay, somebody's got, we got to do something about this. And, you know, given the industry that I was in or am in, the field that I, I'm in, qualitative research, it's all about talking to people and finding out how they think and feel and building empathy with them. So I started then to start studying, like, what was the work that was being done? What were the scientists saying? And there actually wasn't that much. There's been a lot more in the last 10 years uh, of study from a neuroscience perspective, um, as well as from a social perspective and parenting and, um, you know, but started to see like, okay, there's cognitive and emotional empathy. And 
in the workplace, cognitive empathy, and in much of day-to-day life, cognitive empathy is what we want. Those are the other people that aren't in our immediate tribe. And how do we get along with them? And what do we have to do to see their point of view? And, you know, so, so that everything will work and function better and we can actually, you know, dig our way out of pandemics and social injustice and all the, all the issues that the last two years have, have you know, brought forward and shown light on. Now, and that that's a, a good segue into you refer in your book, uh, you know, being judgmental and empathy requires an absence of judgment. And yet, I think going back to our conversation around behaviors and whatnot and our identities, uh, it, we are by nature, I think, very judgmental. And the slang term would be judgy. But we'll be professional, we'll say being judgmental, but really it's about being judgy. And if we can't overcome that hurdle of being judgmental, we can't get to empathy. So when we talk about being judgmental, in your book, you you define it really, really well in terms of a lot of times, why are we judgmental? Like, what is the judgment? And I would like to explore that in a little bit more detail, if you will, because again, if we can't overcome that hurdle, then we will never reach empathy. And if we don't reach empathy, we can't connect. We can't influence, particularly as leaders. Leadership is both social influence. And if we can't understand where somebody is coming from, we don't know what makes them tick. We don't understand their fears. We don't understand where behavior um, behaviors are coming from, why these barriers are being put put up. So empathy from a purely practical perspective and a leadership perspective is critical to getting the outcomes that we need as leaders. So let's talk about judgment, Rob, and, and what is judgment and, you know, why is it so difficult to overcome? I feel like Simon and Garfunkel and you know, hello, judgment, my old friend. <laughs> um, and yes, you are absolutely right. Judgment is something we need judgment. We need judgment. And yet, like empathy, you know, it's like whoever coined these phrases, I wish, you know, I, I guess it's like, if I could go back in time, what would I change? And it'd be like, well, I would have another word defined for cognitive empathy so that there isn't this confusion. Um, and similarly with judgment, it's the same thing. There's two different types of judgment. There's making a judgment, which is the, hmm, should I walk down this dark alley? Um, you know, any sort of critical, rational thinking, decision-making that you're doing, there's making a judgment. And then there's being judgmental or being judgy. Um, and that's, I always think about like, can I say being judgmental or is this making a judgment? And that's the difference between those two things. We need to be able to make judgment calls. We need to be able to make decisions and use our judgment to make decisions and guide us through life. But being judgmental is like the, the latest sort of recreational sport, uh, that everybody likes to participate in. And, you know, it, it it's something that if you think about like, okay, well, what's even, what else is behind that empathy crisis and what's keeping us from climbing our way out of it? Look at, look at the media in general. If you look at entertainment over the last even 20 years, reality television is a zero sum competitive sport. Um, and it's all about being judgy and, you know, the, the real housewives that are the bigger bitches get the bigger ratings and they get the, this, you know, everybody likes that. And they look at that or who's the villain on the bachelor or bachelorette. And, you know, it's all about being judgy. 
any of those shows. I mean, The Bachelorette is about judging people um, and being judgy and like, mm, I'll give you a rose, but not you because I don't like, the, you know, whatever. All superficial stuff. Um, that's being very judgmental. And then, you know, social media. And like, do I need to talk about being judgmental on social media and the trolling that happens and just beyond the true trolls, just the day to day, like how we treat each other. Is there enough kindness in, in the ways that we're interacting with each other, um, on all the different social media platforms. And a lot of that, you know, it's social media is about validation. It's about self-worth and I want likes. So I'm doing things that can be outside of my character, but if I know people are going to like it, that gives me that dopamine release, which I want more of it's addictive. So you just keep doing more and more and more of the same, same behaviors. Um, and like, you know, being judgmental about, about people. So all of that is, has fought against, uh, getting to a place of empathy. So for me, like judgment is the brick wall that surrounds us and you have to be able to dismantle it brick by brick so that you can clear it and move forward. If you, if you aren't able to get beyond that. You can't get to a place of empathy because you're closed. You're closed off. You can't see the other person. You can't make that connection. You can't understand them. And so then from a practical perspective, then we'll get into the, the, the five steps that you outlined so effectively in your book. I'm Daryl. I'm a leader. And you know what? I've listened to this or I've watched this and I've heard the empathy word all the time. And it's a buzzword. It's buzz bingo. Oh, there it is. I got to say empathy because that's cool. It's much like servant leadership where I've yeah. done episodes on that. But um, so I'm Daryl. I'm a leader. I'm supposed to be more empathetic. I'm supposed to be more non-judgmental or less judgy. What are one or two cues or something that you would suggest, Rob, from your perspective that would kind of, is an internal check or balance? So if I'm starting to think in these terms or if I'm using these terms both in my head or maybe even worse, outwardly, what are some ways that, that we can tell, all right, you know what? Pump the brakes on the judgment there, dude. What does that look um, like? First, ask yourself, where is this coming from? We know when we're being a bitch, when we're being judgmental. Hit the pause button. I'm just going to wait a minute. Where is, what am I saying? Where is that coming from? Most often it's coming out of a place of bias um, a stereotype that you might have. It could be from past experience, which might not mean past experience with the individual that you're about to be judgmental towards, but from your own past with who knows what, the way your parents behaved, your, your peers or something else that happened in your childhood. So hitting the pause button is the, the first thing you go, wait a minute, where, where is that coming from? And that's really it's challenging. It's hard. I, I spend a lot of time talking about like the biggest section in the book is about dismantling judgment because that is the biggest and the hardest step for most people. Um, getting beyond those particular stereotypes. So, okay, you're in that moment. What do I do? Well, first of all, like think about what you're saying. Where is that coming from? Put yourself into the shoes of the person hearing that. How are they going to receive what you are saying to them? That requires being empathetic. So hopefully you put the judgment down, but you're trying to hear what you're saying, how that's going to be received and being cognizant of that. Think about whether you're asking the questions 
Like, do you have all of the information? Or are you rushing to a decision? Is there something else going on in your life right now that's got your knickers in a twist? Um, maybe you're in a bad mood because you didn't get enough sleep. You got, you know, you're working from home. The kids are running around driving you crazy. You got cats running all over your, your desk, getting in your Zoom calls, whatever it might be. Those things like they, they can cause reaction and they can bring up the judgment monster and you'll start to, to be judgmental. So it's about being thoughtful and mindful of what are you saying? What are your actions even? What's behind it? What's actually driving it? And how is it going to be received? Is it going to uh, uh, deliver the message or elicit the reaction that is what you're actually intending? And um, first of all, when you talked about the cats on the Zoom call, I don't even have cats, Rob. So with all due respect, if there's a cat walking across my desk, I will rightfully be pissed because I don't even have cats. Okay, so first of all, I just want to be clear about that. And secondly, you know, as human beings, this is uh, something that blows a lot of people's minds in that concept called metacognition. So we have the ability to think about what we think and why we're thinking certain things. And that's what makes us human. And that's what separates us from the animals in the animal kingdom and whatnot. And the ability to be self-aware, which I think is probably another superpower. But yep. what you're talking about is the ability to really reflect and, and not judge yourself either for certain things and, and really just being open with yourself. So thank you for that. And that leads us into the five steps. Okay. We've talked about step number one a little bit uh, with regard to step one is dismantle judgment. And is there anything you want to add around step one before we go on to step two? I love the the call out to metacognition um, and and that self awareness and I think a kind of practical example of of that too is like okay you know for me when does my being judgmental come out well it's when a driver is doing some crazy to me crazy driving sort of thing am I jumping to a judgment being judgmental about them. Um, because of a stereotype, because of the ethnicity of the driver or the age of the driver, young or old, you know, if somebody's driving really slow, I immediately go to a place of judgment about, oh, they're really old, um, can't see, shouldn't be driving. If they're really young, <laughs> moving back and forth between lanes, I'm like, oh, these crazy kids. That okay. They okay. Enough, Ron. Okay. Auto. You've just described me driving to the supermarket. Okay. Enough. All right. Just quit beating me up. But I'm doing but the best like, I can, man. But, but it's where it's like, okay. So it's having awareness in that moment of like, wait, 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 where is this coming from? And I'm just frustrated because they're not driving fast enough in some cases, or I do believe that they might be driving dangerously and they'll, they'll cause an accident. So I'm concerned. That's the thought that I need to have. And I need to make a judgment about how I'm going to respond to that. But it's the being judgmental that's got you shaking your fist at somebody and where road rage starts to to come into play. And it's all those emotions of anger getting out of control. So, yes, there are five steps to empathy, um, as I've found from my studies, from looking at my own behavior um, and also the behavior of my clients when I'm with them. That's always fascinating to see like what gets in their way 
when they're presented, I, you know, I'm trained as a moderator. I'm used to going into people, strangers' homes and hanging out for a couple hours and talking to them and finding out how they live and feel. And I find it endlessly fascinating. For my clients, it can be really uncomfortable because they're not used to doing it. They don't do it every other day. Um, it might be a once a year sort of situation. And so, but it's a great example as I went back to that prehistoric um, uh, illustration of the you know other person coming and approaching my cave, well, that's exactly what this is. You've got to then use cognitive empathy to get there. Well, I'm going to have judgment and you got to dismantle the judgment. That's the first step. Get beyond the judgment. The next step is asking good questions and good questions are open. They're exploratory. They're not leading, you know, and you, you watch a, a courtroom drama and there's an objection leading the witness. That's when a question is being asked to get somebody to say something for, you know, affirmation bias would be an, a, a bias that feeds into that. Um, when you want somebody to, to say a certain thing, you lead them in a direction or you might ask a closed question. And a closed question is yes, no, maybe <laughs> one word answers. And that's like anybody but a teenager, um, because the teenager has the miraculous gift of turning every question into a one word answer. Um, but, and see, I'm being judgmental about you know, broad stereotypes about teenagers. And I know from experience, like that's not the case, but, um, but it's asking open questions. So don't ask a question that can end with, you know, that can be answered yes or no. Because it's like, okay, um, if you're looking to try to explore and, and learn from people. Uh, the next step after that. Sorry to interrupt, Rob. Um, a, a good example that I use and I've heard around, you know, open-ended versus closed-ended where you know, when we're trying to, when we talk to a coworker and if Sam, the leader, the usual is, Hey, how are you today? The standard answer is going to be good or fine or surviving or every day above ground's a good day or, you know, whatever. Um, but if you really want to seek understanding for somebody, you would say, what are your feelings around going back to work to the office rather than, Hey, do you want to go back into, into the office? Yes or no. Or what are your feelings about this? What are your thoughts around that? And then kind of, and we'll get into it with active listening, but really being attentive to the actual answer. So when Rob talks about closed-ended versus open-ended, there's, it takes a very skilled person to turn an open-ended question into, you know, one word answer. And even if they do, as a leader, your obligation, I would, for responsibility, maybe is a different word uh, or a better word, is to to explore what that looks like and really figuring out from an empathetic perspective what is their their perspective on a particular situation. And you can have much richer conversations and you'll get way more information and you'll be able to connect really effectively with people by using that uh, the open-ended question, for example. So I just, uh, sorry to interrupt. I didn't want to lose sight of, of that particular point. Thank you. I think those are great examples that you just gave, um, you know, and, and it is what are your feelings about returning to the office or what are your feelings about working from home versus how do you like working from home? Well, you know, love it, hate it, okay. And in those moments, though, it, Regardless of which question you ask, where you want to go further, this is the the uh, ultimate tip 
on how to further the conversation. All you have to do is sit there and ask, tell me more about that. And that is what will, you know, okay. You start to, to fill in and answer. Yes. Tell me more about that. You do have to be comfortable with silence and let them start to speak. Um, and let them take the conversation where, wherever is in their heads. And that's the beauty of it too. When you're asking a good question, it's set up so that the person that you're speaking with can take you in any number of directions. And it depends on what's going on for them. And ultimately that's what you're trying to understand what's happening with the other person. Cause you're trying to understand their point of view. So if you give them the space and you're asking an open question and you're following it up with a great open question where they can just continue on, you're going to get a much richer conversation than if you're asking the, those sort of yes, no closed or, or stubby sort of questions. And Other, beware of the judgment wall, right? Yeah, and that's going to want, that's going to be coming up. The more they talk, the more the tendency or the more temptation is for us to now Oh, that's way more I can apply judgment to. That's excellent. Keep talking so yes. I can continue to judge. So again, looping back, reserve judgment. You are truly just, you're being interested in the answer. So I love how that judgment, like you said in your book, you know, I think, I know you've published it or you're publishing it, but a good title would be, tell me more about that, Rob. That I'll just, love just that. a little tidbit for you. Well, uh, thank you. Know, you. Great Let title me... for a book. Hold on. Let me email my publisher and see what they can do about that. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yes. And I just have to say the woman that taught me that, who did my moderator training uh, for me and just changed my life 14 years ago, Naomi Henderson, unfortunately just passed yesterday from COVID uh, breakthrough infection. Um, so, uh, she's very, you know, near and dear. And I reached out to her earlier this year, asking her if I could use that title, because that's a word, that's a phrase that I associated with her and, and everyone in the industry does. And she was very generous and gracious and said, yes. Um, so, um, I just feel the need to, to give a tip of the hat to Naomi and may she rest in power. Um, thank you for that. Yeah. And, and so, yes. And thank you for bringing <laughs> judgment. And I talk about it in the book. It shows up everywhere. It's not just like, you know, it's like the whack-a-mole of getting to empathy and you don't know when the judgment's going to show up. There might be something that somebody's telling you when you've asked that good question and they're feeding back and it triggers you. You, you go to a, well, I would never do that. We'll put the cats in another room. Who cares? Um, and I have three cats, so they do make, they're not around, they're sleeping right now, but they do make appearances, um, on many a call. Um, so yes, you're, you're, you've got to be mindful that the judge to keep the judgment at bay, um, being judgmental. Um, the third step after you've asked, you dismantled your judge, you're asking good questions is to actively listen. And that's about being present. So you and I are present with each other in this conversation, Daryl, and it's awesome. And we've got a connection and really great conversation. We're listening to each other. We're hearing, typing, doing something else, which, you know, I've been on plenty of, of Zoom and Teams calls where, and my own team says they can tell when I suddenly start doing something else. And I'm like kind of one ear sort of hearing stuff, but my mind is elsewhere. And, um, that. So I'm not listening. Um, I can't possibly take in what's being said. It's also not making the other person feel seen or heard. 
Um, so you've got to be using not only your ears and hearing what's being said, you also need to use, you have to be present. You've got to use your other senses. So when we're in person, you know, it, it's not just the the hearing, but what's the, the, the smells, the touch, um, the sensing of things, the other things that you're seeing. So reading body language, the nonverbal cues. Um, when we go on an, an in-home interview in particular, like you, you're seeing somebody's environment. Um, so you're able to, to learn a lot more um, and hear a lot more, listen a lot more by using that. Um, I also talk about in the book using your intuition and your sixth sense. I do believe that that is something that's uh, innate in all of us that even worse than empathy people have suppressed because it's like where'd that voice come from? Um, and people get, get afraid of it. But there are times where I've sat down in conversations with people and I can just tell there's something else that they need to to talk about or we've got to, to go and explore. One of the chapters is all about uh, unpacking that and somebody had a trauma that we needed to to explore and clear before we could get into the the important topic of why they eat canned soup and how that, you know, the role that canned soup plays in their life. Um, so you've got to actively listen. And then the fourth step is integrating into your understanding. So simply put, I love chocolate ice cream. Other people like vanilla and that's okay. And I have to just make room in my head that there might be other people out there that like vanilla ice cream and then listen and I'm and, you know, without judgment taking in like, what is it about the vanilla that they love? And I might learn quite a lot about them, about myself, about vanilla ice cream, about, I don't know what else. Um, but you've got to be able to integrate it into your understanding. And that's about putting your own perspective aside and you know, kind of splitting your brain and okay, my perspective's over here. And this side is this other point of view and it's not wrong. It's just different. And if you can approach things from that non-judgmental place of just understanding and seeking to understand, that's how you're going to be able to get to, to empathy. And I, I think it's important, Rob, too, that, you know, be genuinely interested. Um, and I know when I facilitate programs or if I'm responding to a crisis and, and trying to figure out what we call it situation awareness, trying to, to gain information, literally information is not good or bad. It, it's, you know, the cliche, it's the meaning that we attach to something. That's the, the challenge we run into and truly approaching it from a point of curiosity and interest. And I find myself all the time and the team I work with regularly, they know the look like I will literally just, you know, just like out of a James Bond movie or something be like, that's interesting. Like I'll literally do that. That's my subconscious kind of cue because I am genuinely interested in other people and situations and so on and so forth. And, but, but that said, that's a skill and that's something that just has to be continually reinforced with yourself. So I, I really, yeah. really like that. And again, I don't even have to agree. That's right. not the point. The point exactly. is not, you know, I have to figure out a rebuttal, you know, in terms of active listening or anything like that. I don't have to be right. <gasps> what? I don't have to be right. Well, hold on a second. Let's pump the brakes on that, Daryl. Like, what are you going to just expose your belly and just let people walk all over you? No, that's not it at all. And selfishly, if I know my enemy really well, then I can figure out 
how to influence them. And, and that's a, an extreme example, but I think that that's such a, an important phrase, integrate into understanding. And, and it's a deliberate step, which I really, really liked about that. So thank you for that. Absolutely. And, and thank you for bringing up all the, the importance of curiosity and, and everybody has a story to tell. And it's not in a bad way. Like everybody just has a story. We all have our experiences and somebody that looks just like you, um, might have had a very different experience and they have their own story to share. So taking the time to honor that and listen to them and hear their story, like you're, you're just going to learn so much about humanity, about them, about yourself. And you're going to learn how to interact with that person in a way that's going to be a lot more effective. We'll also recognize biases. You know, again, we, we don't have four hours to talk about subconscious or unconscious biases, but um, I was recently on a, on a large project for a non-governmental agency here in Canada, and mm. we had 500 people that I was leading and supporting. And most or a lot were new Canadians, literally new Canadians, refugees from different countries and, and so on and so forth. And it was really interesting, like legit interesting, Rob, just to hear their stories and absolutely amazing, amazing people, amazing individuals. But even if I wasn't looking to integrate in, in understanding, um, if, if I wasn't interested in that, then I would miss out on the fact that people are freaking amazing. I've, you know, people, everyone has a story to tell and I'm coming at it as a white male, 49 years old, handsome, smart, intelligent, charismatic. Okay. Maybe my self-awareness is a little bit off, <laughs> but let's move on, shall we? Um, but yeah, you know, and, and part of leadership is about being curious because you could miss something too. If you think that you have all the answers. Well, you don't have all the answers and that's a red flag. So even integrating it to understanding allows you to make better judgment calls, which you talked about a bit earlier, and you can gain through other people's experiences too. So that can yeah. enrich your own life and your own career as well. So I think that's really, really important. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the, um, one of the biggest lessons I've learned in the last 10 years is just starting to realize that, oh, not everybody thinks just like me. Like, and as that's as a leader in my organization and working with my, um, you know, my employees and our consultants and our clients, like, I think I always thought that everybody, well, of course they think like this and they're going to do, you know, they're going to write the report this way or, or handle this situation. And, and it's like, no, actually they don't. And so, you know, if you want them to handle it a certain way, you need to help them understand where you're coming from for them to have empathy with you so that they can then go and, and do what needs to be done. At the same time, you need to have empathy with them and find out why they might handle a situation in a certain way and what's driving that for them and do it in a non-judgmental way. Don't be judgmental, but together by under, getting to that place of understanding, then you can both make a judgment, a decision on what the course of action might be. Um, so yeah, it, it, it comes up constantly in, in, at work and it's, it's all about cognitive empathy. It's not as much about the emotional empathy. Um, and I'm, I'm so happy that you mentioned the, uh, immigrant experience because one of my favorite 
two of my favorite chapters. Well, they're all my favorite chapters in the book. All of my, all of my chapters are beautiful. Um, but one of my favorite experiences was up in Toronto that I write about in the fifth uh, section of the five steps, which is using solution imagination. So putting yourself into the shoes of somebody else. And, um, one of our clients wanted to understand what the, um, kind of assimilation or culturation experiences like for, uh, immigrants, recent immigrants into Canada. And you know, it's an American multinational. Um, and so, you know, over here, we're like, uh, they're all Hispanic and, you know, they're coming in from Mexico or the Caribbean. And it's like, no, but they're South Asian, they're Chinese, um, very, very different, uh, points of view and, and reference points. And so we got to do in homes, uh, with, with these amazing individuals. And I, I think so many of us forget that, you know, if you are white, you did not come, you're not from here. You, you are of immigrants yourself. Um, and so have some, uh, empathy, uh, and sympathy for what other people have gone through. Um, and it's not unlike perhaps what your own ancestors have done, depend no matter, you know, if you're back from the Mayflower in the United States, um, and the Puritan times, or if you're more recent immigrants, there's a lot of consistency in, in why people want to, to immigrate. And I had an amazing experience. I was talking with a couple in Canada. Uh, they were from India and, you know, the, and it's just, it's things that you don't even think about. Like, and, and if you do pause to reflect on it, you will hopefully interact with somebody that is an immigrant in a completely different way because for example, one couple that I met with, she was a teacher. He was a civil engineer um, back in, in India. So they were definitely you know, educated and, and had good paying jobs um, and living a very comfortable middle, upper middle class life. And they come arrive in Canada and like in any sort of immigrant situation, whether it's the U.S., Canada or elsewhere, oh, that education doesn't count. Um, you've got to start over. You're not qualified to do these basic, you know, sorts of things. And then, so the husband ended up getting a job in a factory and on his very first day at the factory, he was pushing a broom on the factory floor, which is not what a civil engineer does here or in India, um, and had to deal with the sort of humiliation of that and recognition of like, okay, I need to build myself up. But the wife then her first job was at Burger King. And earlier in the conversation, she had told me about the fact that they were um, uh, Hindi and vegetarian. And, and I know enough to know that in the Hindu religion, the cow is a sacred animal and you don't eat the cow. You don't eat the sacred animal. So I started using my solution imagination. In that moment, I'd didn't have judgment. I was asking some good questions. I was getting some really interesting information. I was right there in it. I was actively listening and I was starting to integrate it into understanding like, okay, there's the whole cow thing and she's got to work and the education not counting and you've got to start over. And I started to put myself into her shoes and I started to think, what would that be like to have to go to work at Burger King and work on the grill line? where what do they do but it's meat uh, it's cow um 
And so I had gotten to this place of empathy. And so I asked, I was like, okay, I think there's something here that's rather interesting to understand about the sacrifice that you make when you're immigrating. So I asked her, I was like, I connected those dots and it's in the book. What was that like for you? And she, it was really, um, uh, very heartfelt in her response and the tears the first day as, as she was realizing what she was doing and how the other workers were in a very similar situation um, and what she ended up having to do to get herself uh, up and above and beyond that. And to me, I found that incredibly inspiring um, about the sacrifice that that people make in order to have a better life for their son. It wasn't even about them. They were doing it all for their infant son. Um, so using solution imagination is the fifth step and it's putting yourself into the shoes of somebody else, imagining what it might be like to be them in that moment, to see the world the way that they see it. And I think that, you know, in, in Canada and throughout North America and a lot of other places in the world, the, the empathy or empathetic conversation also applies to Indigenous and First Nations and whatnot. And so we can start to see micro challenges and issues that can get solved with empathy just in that one-on-one -on -one interactions between, say, a leader and, and a team member. But we can also see empathy applied to the macro from a society perspective in different cultures and generations and all of those other things. And that First Nations conversation. And I have a bunch of other guests coming up um, scheduled to talk about diversity and inclusion and, and so on and so forth, because I think that without empathy, we can't even have those conversations uh, respectfully at all. And so that's why it's really important to have this conversation around empathy so we can figure out what it is and figure out what it's not. And then we can start to have some of these conversations. And, you know, at the end of it, Rob, we don't, again, we don't even have to agree or disagree. That's not what this is about. This isn't about imposing my values or my opinion or my upbringing on another person. We don't even get to that point with this empathetic conversation and the five steps. But really, after we do the five steps, now, now, only now, can we start to figure out a solution of what right looks like. But we're so quick to judge and skip over the five steps and get right into solutions and yeah. uh, we solve great problems, just ask us, uh, you know, but we've solved the wrong problem. And so empathy really allows us, that's just that first point yeah. of understanding reconciliation and, and finding win-win solutions, all of those other things. So the it's five, a critical conversation that we have to just start with. Yeah, the five steps are what you need to do in the moment when you're having an interaction with somebody or you're contemplating whatever. Um, it's what you have to do in the moment just to get to empathy. So from the dark forest to the roundabout are the five steps. Um, and then you get to that place of empathy and then you're able to go off to whatever the different destinations are. And I'm, I'm glad you brought up um, the indigenous peoples and the native tribes. I would add to that African-Americans, you know, the, and the um, slavery and the reflection uh, on slavery that we're now having and that that recognition and, and difficult conversations about those past behaviors, but how those of them played out for people today and, and how, how they're living life and experiencing life as a result. Um, and it's a lot of stuff to unpack. To the earlier conversation we were having, you know, it, it's, it's the mountain um, and it, the mountain doesn't erode in a day. 
it takes a long time and what you know, we all want it to go faster and there are things we can do to help speed that along, but it, it takes time uh, to get there and to bring about that meaningful change. And I think it's important to recognize that holistic change, systemic change, all of that starts with the individual, you know, and it starts with the one conversation. It starts with a, a YouTube audio video podcast that people can yeah. watch. It starts with the conversation with your teenage son or daughter. It starts with the conversation of the barista at Starbucks that maybe has a different skin color than you, you name it. And so we're not talking about changing everything overnight, but I can promise you that if we're all leaning in and having these conversations and, and just going with the five steps, Rob, to your point, that is, that's our starting point. That's kind of our, our, our trailhead, you know, from now we've got a bunch of different trails we can go down, but if we aren't even starting the, the journey at the same point, you look at even court cases, there's an agreed statement of facts to say, all right, we are all fundamentally in agreement about these things. Yes, to get there, whole bunch of, you know, jockeying and all the rest. But it, but even our court system says, look, let's all agree that this this is what we're working off of here. And so fundamentally, if we can't get there, we're not we're going to be going down these amazing journeys separately. And then we'll wonder at the end, well, shit, why am I? Where is everybody? I took the right way, Rob. I don't understand why they went the wrong way. And so as the empathy guru, my term for you, um, if so, because I thank you, know, you. With all the respect, I'm going to give you a title because it's <laughs> my show and that's yep. how we roll. <laughs> but um, what's the one question that, that you, you wish people would ask, but they don't? Um, because you, you, you live and breathe this all the time. And a lot of times the quality of your life is reflected in the quality of your questions. And even one of the steps is ask good questions. So what's a question that, that you would wish more people asked if we haven't covered it already? Yeah, um, that's a great question. Thank you for asking it. I think um, it's, the question is, what if I can't? What if I can't? And, and what and, if, and what what if, if I you can't? can't? And to that, um, I would, I, I have a few things I would say. One is that we all are born with empathy and with, and, and all have the ability to do it. There's only a small group of, of folks that have social, antisocial personality disorders. And that's a small percentage of the population, but the narcissist, the sociopath, psychopath, like empathy is not accessible to them. And yet narcissists actually feed on empathy. Um, they, they, they go find the, the, the empath, but beyond that, that 30% I was talking about earlier, that one third, they, most of them have the ability to actually have empathy, but they need to have the metacognition. They need to take the time to reflect on what might be getting in their way. And that might not be something they're able to achieve through their own, just sitting on a bath, a warm bath and, and pondering it while staring at a candle, like you might need to engage a mental health professional to unpack some of that stuff. And that would be amazing um, and, and very helpful for people to do. So I think there's a lot of fear about what if I can't do this? What if I fail? 
And it's like, well, I think you actually probably can, but it's then taking the steps that each individual needs in order to, to get to that point. And, you know, I appreciate you calling me an empathy guru. I, I say many times in the book, I'm, I am not perfect. I mean, I judgment flares for me, but you know, plenty of times it's, it's wired in my family's DNA. Um, but I have to be really cognizant of it and, and aware and, and dismantle it when it's coming up. And then I can move pretty easily through the other, other steps at this point. Um, but we're all on a journey. We're all practicing and it's, it's the effort and the attempt that's what matters. And now no journey is easy, but journeys are far easier when you have a roadmap and you have some tools. So let's talk about the book that we've been alluding to throughout this conversation here. What is it? Where can they get it? At the time of this recording, it's in pre-order, but yes. obviously this content, last time I checked, empathy will apply uh, well, for the rest of humanity. So if you're seeing this or hearing this in a year or two or whatever the case is, the book will be released. And uh, having read it, folks, honestly, it, it's it's literally step by step to get to that trailhead to start the conversation. So, Rob, over to you. Where where it is available wherever books are sold. Um, hardcover, ebook, an audiobook version is coming. Um, I actually have an early printed copy of it right here. Tell me more about that. Solving the empathy crisis. So awesome. I love it. I love it. Um, yeah, I mean, oh my God, the, the experience of getting to open the box up and, and see it was just huge. And I'm actually now reading the book as though I'm a reader of the book, which is, is so rewarding as an author. I've worked on this for so long. Um, but tell me more about that. So Amazon, Barnes & Noble, um, it, it's, if you go to five steps to empathy.com, five, the, the number, uh, five steps to empathy.com, that's the book landing page. And there's links to a lot of different retailers that are selling it. So whether you're an Amazon shopper or elsewhere, uh, you'll be able to get it. And then there's other links to other information, um, to, to go through training, uh, to get bonus content, lots of stuff that's available. Well, as a fellow author, uh, even to say that is very weird for me. I am very empathetic with regard to the journey to get there. Um, I'm working on one myself and, uh, just, you know, all, all the, the inner dialogue that happens and that's probably another conversation, but. Uh, having read the book, Rob, you can be very, very, very proud of the outcome and the result. And even if, even if it just starts the synapses firing with regard to empathy, I think that that will have moved people at least starting down the right path. But um, that's not to imply it's not full of value because it is. You know, a lot of people are looking for, well, how do I do it? Where's the roadmap? You're going to have the roadmap now. So, Rob, thank you for contributing that piece of work to our society and, and allowing us to move the conversation around empathy and and just ultimately moving humanity forward and out of this empathy crisis and doing your part for that. And thank you for taking the time to join us on this uh, conversation. And I anticipate there's going to be more to come. I just, I'm no Kreskin or uh, like a future guy, futurist or whatever, <laughs> but I think we're going to be doing some work uh, together. Also, uh, we'll leave 
the URL in the description as well as where else we can find Rob on uh, social media like Instagram and so on and so forth. So Rob, thank you very, very much for taking the time out of your day to talk to us. And uh, as I said, move the yardsticks a little bit further. Thank you so much, Daryl. It's awesome conversation. Yes, I'm looking forward to future ones as well. And as one of the early readers of the book, thank you for the feedback. I, I appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Rob. Thank you.